Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Existentialism is often discussed as if it's a philosophy of despair, but I think the truth is just the opposite. Sartre, once interviewed, said he never really felt a day of despair in his life. But one thing that comes out from reading these guys is a real kind of exuberance. It's like, your life is yours to create. The Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Helen Pluckrose has started an organization called Counterweight, a support group for people who feel like they're being coerced by their employers to espouse woke beliefs. Have you joined yet? <laughs> no. I, I thought it was going to be something about like... <laughs> <laughs> we can't like, put oh, that no. in. I don't know. I thought that's. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> I have um, to already edit out. Like, the first <laughs> I, I mean, I'm saying, um, like, um, <laughs> for uh, for the pressure for being too woke, I would join. You know, if it started up, like, I feel the pressure. I feel like you know now. Now we have this reputation as being these woke Marxists now, but like, wokeness annoys me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think being Marxist is also has anything to do with being woke. Right. No, woke well, they, is a, like a, a like a ruling class ideology. Wokeness. <laughs> it's all the same. CRT, Jew, Jew, Jewishness, Jew. <laughs> Marxist, <woke>. Marxist, Frankfurt, <laughs> uh, Frankfurt School something. <laughs> <laughs> right, Frankfurt School something. Nobody knows exactly. <laughs> like I mean, like Marcuse. Uh, yeah, it's just all all one big category of people who want to take down Confederate statues. I mean, we're, we're, we joke, but I, I could see us devoting like a 10 episode series to Adorno, to Theodore <laughs> to Adorno. and his work. So, um, no, but this is, yeah, like I saw this Atlantic article. It's not a, so Helen Pluckrose, for those who don't know, is one of the uh, hoaxers for not the initial yeah. hoax that we had James Lindsay on for. But for the one that was more, that <laughs> they didn't just like pay to get into, <laughs> like they didn't just <laughs> right. pay money for them for them to publish. This, this was the right. one that they, well, actually they, got accepted somewhere. Um, this this was the one where they they blanketed. They they tried to like fifteen places and got like right. seven of them in. Only some of them were paid to publish. I right. guess. Uh, yeah. And so then they got criticized for that, and people are getting criticized for you know anti orthodox views and so you know it's 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 again coddling for for me but not for you you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> no, exactly it's so it's so 
it's it's just so obvious to anybody else. It's like you know they they do mental gymnastics to 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 resist the claim that it's coddling for them because no no in this case it actually matters. You right. know, like in this case, it's it's actually a problem, which goes to show you it was never about coddling. It was about what what people were wanting to like change or talk about or whatever. It, it's not a it's right. It's just about the content of like exactly. It's just about yeah. like people disagree with me. Uh, yeah. Well, that's just know. life, you know. <laughs> like we, I think like we've dealt with that. Like we never, you know, especially early on, we didn't agree with each other, but we didn't join support support groups or at least well, I, I i mean i did but yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know um, i'm more of a pain in the ass to deal with <laughs> yeah, it's just a support group about you specifically um have just you, you and have like you my heard wife of... and daughter like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like my brother exactly. and like <laughs> my stepmother would drop in every so often have you heard i'm very very sad to have learned for the first time of this rapper named tom mcdonald have you heard of this guy mm-hmm He's this like white, like Canadian rapper with like tattoos on his face, who who is like the James Lindsay of rap. His his rap songs are about like whining about like how unfairly treated because he's a white man. They're just terrible. They're terrible songs. Like, but it's all just whining about how how hard it is to be a white man nowadays. Yeah. It's terrible. Like it's just so cringe. Just look, look up Tom McDonald and just get ready for cringe. It's so bad. Yeah. All right. There's so many examples of. Yeah. You know, and like, you know what? Like, you have to be a little fucked up to act that way and feel that way. Like, and, and you see where this is taken, James Lindsay, right? Like, at this point, can you still be mad at him or like, <laughs> you know, like these people? Like, I think like it drives people crazy sometimes. It's. I don't think it's like it's fun i mean some people are grifters some people are yeah. just doing it for the money like jesse single but <laughs> <laughs> friend of the show <laughs> the, the, but some people like i think really just like it, it drives them out of their mind you know and at that point uh well they're still free hey, they are still oh <laughs> they're free <laughs> in what way do you mean tamler could yeah. it be in the way that jean-paul sartre meant <laughs> that was not one of my like <laughs> <laughs> most <laughs> seamless uh transitions i don't think like i wouldn't put that on my mount rushmore of uh, segues but yes we are talking about jean-paul Sartre's famous kind of introduction to his his version of existentialism existential is a humanism that's what we're talking about in the second segment all right well before we talk about the existentialists um we're talking, we have an opening segment on how much uh, discretionary time we have and its relationship to our happiness. So, And can I ask why you call it, said discretionary instead of free time? It's because that's, what the, that's what's in the article. <laughs> I have the, the article. I think, I think well, discretionary is, since it's a bigger word, it, it sounds more sciencey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, in the in the Vice article that I've read, it just it's, says it's too just much free time. Free time well, that's for the actually. plebs. Yeah, that's for us dumbasses, us hillbillies. <laughs> right. So, so there's two. So there's the Vice article um, called "Too Much Free Time Isn't Actually Bad for You," and there they discuss, among other things, a recent paper by Marissa Sharif, Casey Mogulner, sorry if I mispronounced that, and Hal Hirschfield, 
who Hal is a friend of mine. Hal, I call him Hal Hirschfield. <laughs> Anti-Semitically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with, with disdain in my voice. <laughs> um, called having too little or too much time is linked to lower subjective well-being. So yeah, we can launch like I, we can launch into the the actual science of it, or we can start with the Vice article. But I think I can summarize just the the article that that came out recently in uh, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Um, they essentially looked at two big data sets, like thousands of people. These these are data sets that that are just out there about like the workforce and demographics and all that stuff. And they find in both data sets that there is this curvilinear relationship between subjective well-being, sort of the standard measures of like how happy are you with your life, um, and how much free time people have, such that people who have very little free time are less happy, but also people who have too much free time. And here, too much is just obviously like defined by the data, but, but it's like be, the, the sweet spot, the little Goldilocks effect that they find is between two and a half and five hours. Um, per day. Per day, yeah. yeah. Um, now, that, there's caveats for that, which we can talk about, because that's what the Vice article focuses on. Because actually, it seems as if people who picked up on this finding just started talking about it fairly simplistically, even, even using it as a way to sort of reify the value right. um, in working your ass off. You know? Right. Yeah. You, you could see where that was going. Like, exactly. I'm sure... I'm like sure they didn't have a hard time finding funding from this from certain <laughs> There's a memo from HR saying yeah. recent studies have shown that right. not working uh, is actually linked to lower, lower having an, an like even one day off a week is really bad for <laughs> you and your yeah. happiness. I'll you know so I'll just say now that the paper is very clear in in the thing the the sort of caveats the the moderators of this effect what they find is that there are two, two things that sort of eliminate or, or mitigate this effect. One, if your free time or discretionary time is productive, then um, it is far less of a bad thing. Productive like, in what sense? Yeah, it's a good question. So they had people sort of self-define productive. Here's, here's what, they, what they said when asking people about their hours, they say, by productive, we mean that you consider this use of discretionary time not to be, quote unquote, wasted. This use of time might feel useful, accomplished, fulfilling, helpful, purposeful, and or worthwhile. So it's non-work time for sure. It's that weird sense. that like just fulfilling, it sounds like not a waste of time is a great definition. Why call that productive? though? Yeah, like, yeah that's I weird. I don't know. It's like a bit. They're at business schools. These these authors. Okay. So <laughs> never mind. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. The uh, so so the the curvilinear effect is is goes down such that it, you're not as penalized in your subjective well being for more discretionary time. But it goes away. They find like that it goes away if the t if the discretionary time is spent on social activities. So if if you're doing social versus versus solo activities. It's just a, it's actually a positive linear effect. The more free hours you have, the happier you are. So Even if you then say that time was wasted or not worthwhile? I guess so. Um, yeah. So long as it's, you're doing it with other people, socially, you're involved in social activities. So it's interesting. This is one of those studies that raises a good question and that I, I can relate to even their conclusions like 
And especially since, you know, we have the kind of job where sometimes we're really fucking busy. Yeah. And sometimes, like, if we have a leave or a sabbatical, we don't call them sabbaticals in Texas. We gotta call them leaves. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You're not allowed to have sabbaticals in public universities in Texas. Yeah. But so, so I, thought, like, I thought it was anti-Semitic. <laughs> <laughs> no Shabbat for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's college football day. <laughs> you know, I think... There is something like, ha- you know, when you have a leave, which, you know, I've had a couple and there and now you have the whole day to, to face like yeah. and, and you can do work, but you also cannot. You don't have anything necessarily do even like two weeks from now. So you yeah. can sort and that's a kind of a daunting thing. And that's and that and that feels too unstructured sometimes, whereas like a kind of sweet spot of of teaching and but not but maybe one or two classes at most and then coming home and having a drink and now you're feeling like i earned this drink you know yeah. <laughs> i taught two classes <laughs> <laughs> right right uh, it, like i said, it, I said it, some it, words it, in front of students like pass me the pass me the 40 ounce <laughs> <laughs> right I, I like so i i get that and, and it strikes me as plausible at the same time i also have this and i don't know if you agree with this i have this feeling or conviction that like this is not a question that you can ask in isolation like this you know and i think this is part of what the vice article is pointing out but you can't just ask, because the reasons why you might have free time are are so different and also like if you live a life where you have seven f- hour free hours a day and you know that that's your life you will figure out a way to deal with that, you know? Like, you will figure out a way to, like, use that free time in a way that's more fulfilling to you. Just randomly asking people, like, how much free time they have and how much... And even just conceptualizing the question that way, like, what is the ideal number of free hours to have per day just strikes me as really misguided and, like, not the right way to approach a question like this. Even though, like, you know, what their results allegedly show can resonate with me, like, I, I still wouldn't take those results or my intuitions about this. Like, I, it's, it's too much a part of just the larger structure of your life to, to usefully think of in those terms. So I also think that, too. And they're yeah, not totally I, consistent. It's, it's um, well, I agree, I agree with the, the, the meshing with intuition. I think if you, have, if you have a job that does, like, maybe our kinds of jobs are the ideal sort of, jobs to 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 notice this like when when we are very busy and when we're not it does seem it's pretty clear to me when i have too much time on my hands and like i'm being lazy like i don't have anything going on after after a good couple of weeks i'm like pulling my hair out like what's left of it i'm i'm (laughs) i'm i'm not motivated to start any projects i'm not motivated you know i've been i'm tired from working i don't but i don't have anything to do and like i can feel myself lapsing into a funk uh, like where you wake up late, stay up late doing nothing. Um, right. As to that second part, you know, if you read the paper, I think they're, f- they're fairly sober about what they can and can't show. And, and they have one of the better uh, sections on the limitations of, of what they can show. Um, they do try to work with these big, big representative samples. The first one is only uh, working people and they say well that you know we also want to see in non-working people so they got a hold of another big data set with non-working people and they they take all of whatever you know demographics and what kind of work and their income 
and and they try their best to statistically control for it. But they they do say in their conclusion that this has to be taken with a grain of salt, where so many things that might actually like play into this and they point out explicitly that this is a small effect so like they're not seeing like huge effects it's not like you're it's going from depression to to happiness um and so they they say uh let me see let me try to find the right so the current uh the current an initial exploration into the relationship between time affluence and subjective well-being as an initial exploration. Our hope is that this work spurs further investigation into more precise research questions. For instance, the current findings examine how the amount of discretionary time a person has on a typical day relates to well-being, but it does not inform the experience of, an, of atypical days, like when on vacation or on a holiday. Furthermore, although we have provided initial insight into possible mechanisms, stress for too little time and lack of productivity for too much time, our identified effect is likely multiply determined. Boredom may also contribute to reduce well-being from having an overabundance of discretionary time. So, you know, they, they, they grant that there's a whole bunch of factors that are probably at play. And you know, the more granular uh, uh, you get, the more you might learn about it. So I guess that's the part, that, that last thing you said is the part that I think I am resisting. Like, I actually, from just reading the Vice article and from skimming, at best, the actual study, think that if you're starting with that question, they did about as good a job as you can to investigate the question. It's like this isn't one of those studies where it's like uh, the, you know, some of the ones we've done recently where it's just like so ridiculous and their limitations are a joke and they don't like it, it's no, everything about this seems like well done and they're very honest about their limitations. I just think like, but wait a minute, should we be even approaching the question this way? Because if you were going to use this information in some way to affect your life, I, I don't think you could just say, well, it's okay that I'm only have two free hours a day because that's in the sweet spot according to this thing. Like what information is that giving individuals about like how to live their life and or, you know, how to make their life better or worse? And it's that where I'm I'm wondering whether this like there it can it can do anything. Right. Like, well, I don't think I I'm mean, expressing this well, but like, I, I guess the idea is, you know, let's say I'm not within that sweet spot one way or another. Would that give me any reason to try to get to the sweet spot? Well, I mean, so so I guess t the the finding that there is a sweet spot um, combined with the finding that that sweet spot goes away if you engage in social activities, I think. Yeah gives me sort of like some sort of guide uh, there's when i have free time i often don't go out of my way to engage in social activities and so right. it might be a guide to say well you know if i'm to believe this maybe like filling yeah. filling my days with social activities might be helpful um right but right yeah it's, yeah uh, that's right if you you sometimes are feeling like you have too much free time on your hands you, and you'd be like oh well i should go out more what do you no, I, I take that point for sure. Like that's actually the part, one part of the study that I think is, I, I don't know if that would, yeah, my worry affects that part. I just think we need to think about it more holistically when it comes to something like free time because just the fact that we're 
that we feel bad about ourselves if we don't do something productive is just a part of like how we're wired to just always feel like something has to be accomplished um, well, for that I'll, to be good. Uh, yeah, I also and, think that that like if you, th- it's like a super American um, kind mm-hmm. of question to ask, where mm-hmm. like in in some countries and some cultures they would ask like, what's the best? You know, how much work makes you happy? <laughs> Right. Not how much free time makes you happy, because obviously, because like (laughs) you're just like in other countries that are more collectivist, you're 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 spending time with family all the time. And so like having to work is is like the 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 trade off that you have to make for for going going back to family, Um, which and then relates to your the study. Right. It's like because their free time is spent interconnected social and socially engaged like they they it's not going to be too much yeah it's it's there's there's a um there's like a subtle critique here that i can't put like i can't put my finger on quite well which is like i i have the the way in which the study was conducted is as good from what i can tell as any study it's that it's the values that are uh, shining through in the way that things are framed and asked that is uh, that's sort of undiscussed like right. the, the assumption that this is that's what I was trying to get at yeah, yeah I think that's what I was trying to get at yeah yeah and it's not like it's not an empirical critique like as you're saying it's it's more of like a it's a re- revealing of of something that it's billed as objective but it's actually value laden right in how they kind of divide things up. Yeah. That's exactly right. I think that's, yeah. That's yeah, it, you know, the part about the productive versus unproductive, though, uh, strikes me as is uh, sort of the annoying advice to get a hobby. <laughs> oh, yeah. you just need a hobby. <laughs> no, sometimes I just want to sit and play video games all day. And even when I know it'll make me unhappy if I do that for a week. Like, that's, that's all I want. Yeah, like I don't know, like I don't, I don't know if I like I feel like I do have that problem where it's not that I I need to get a hobby, but that there is this distinction between um, time I feel that was worth spending and time that I just kind of automatically did, you know, uh, often online, just yeah. scanning political or sports articles that really I didn't give a shit about like Ben Simmons and the 76ers why do I need to know about like where that drama is but I somehow like do know about it. okay so I mean even you. that part I think is like yes like it's it's way better when I feel like it was worth spending but the the, the trick is to figure out how to get yourself to do the free right. time that's worth spending right, right. which I we're not that- good at exactly exactly so when you asked what like what what advice could this like or how could this give any guidance like i'm actually skeptical maybe for a different reason because i think that um it's not it's not that i don't know that i like what's gonna make me miserable or happy it's that i often do know and am just like i have a weakness of the will and i don't i just don't like i'm too tired so i just actually scroll through tiktok And then I'm just like, fuck, that was such a waste. Like, that wasn't a couple hours that I just wasted. I could have been doing something. Right. Uh, so, And so, that yeah. seems to me to be the crux of the problem right there. And so any talk of whether you have too much of that or too little of that 
is a distraction from the real issue, which is how do you make yourself feel good about the free time that you have? Yeah. And yeah. I like I I'm with you with that stuff. It's like I know that this isn't going to be fun at this, and and I know while, I, but at the same when I'm doing it, it's like no, that's fine. I just get to like I'm, I just need to chill out and um, right. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. <laughs> but it's not chilling out. It's not it's really. Not. Chill. Do, do you ever have like a free free afternoon and you like take some Adderall and you you end up just yeah. reading Reddit and you're just like fuck. Exactly. You just wasted <laughs> all that Adderall. And like all you ended up doing was going down some rabbit hole that you couldn't eat. Like I couldn't even tell you what it was like the next yeah. day. Yeah, it's completely like it used to be that I would at least pick up a book, you know, like a, a book yeah. of I, as, a, as a kid. I loved reading books of like random facts or just even like encyclopedias. And I would just like, you know, like accrue knowledge that way, at least. Now it's like, as you say, I don't even know what I got out of this. Like, I, I, I can't like I would have to go to my search history to even like remember <laughs> what it was that I did. This is why I love movies, partly because I yeah. feel like if I watch a movie like I'm happy, like that yeah. was time well spent, you know, and, and yeah, obviously reading is like that. And I've tried to keep up that habit with some success, but not full success. But it's always like if you've been reading, you're not like disappointed with yourself. Yeah. But I yeah, and you're right that there's room for just look. I I really actually do just want to just scroll through every <laughs> right. like I read headline this. about the Patriots or whatever. But um, yeah. and if it didn't, if it doesn't go that well, who gives a shit? That's kind of what I want to do. Yeah, I do resist sometimes the um, the feeling that I need that that all of my time needs to be somehow like positive in utility. Like right. sometimes I'm like it's I'm just shaking my fist at at the overlords that think that I that I need to worry about my well being or something like that. And, and especially when you think of it in like teleological terms, like you have to improve yourself somehow, <laughs> yeah. or you know, like never mind being productive for the workplace or something like that. But right. like like the people who meditate so that they can be like they can close deals faster. <laughs> you know, so like like 1980s <laughs> Zen businessmen. <laughs> right. <laughs> Exactly. Like that's like I'm not even like obviously that's kind of fucked up in its own way. But I'm just saying even the people who think like their free time has to be used for yeah. personal growth in yeah. some way. I, I react against. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. No, it's funny because there are clearly things that that are of no real value that I deeply enjoy spending my free time. So if I watch like some documentary about hip hop, like time well spent like it will matter nothing to nobody like it, it will never have a positive influence like and i used to feel that way about making beats you know i, f I found an excuse to like to have some utility out of beats but you know like there, there's something about cr creative endeavors that that i will never even share that i'm okay with wasting quote unquote wasting my time i, I just hate the thought that everything has to be for something um, but but like I think that's what you know the good thing about their definition of it in in retrospect do you, are you do you feel that was time well spent however you define that. right yeah and like you would never say for you know whatever the the documentary you yeah. wouldn't say like I I think like I'm I wish I hadn't done that I wish I'd done right. something else like that's right. what you wanted to do um, whereas there are other times where it's like yes I definitely wish I had done something else what the fuck was wrong with me it's you know do you do you ever watch TikTok? Do you ever do you have TikTok? No, I have not. Do, I think like out of personal, just some kind of way of preventing myself from it is yeah disintegration. It is, it is to me the quintessential sort of like 
you feel like you're doing something when you're doing it. And then when you're done, you realize you've done nothing. Even jerking off has right. more positive utility than... Yeah, it's than productive, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like a cough. <laughs> like, <laughs> something came out. <laughs> exactly. Something was produced. <laughs> TikTok is, it, it is like the, the, the evilest of algorithms just feeding you stuff that just has zero it's in, it's in, an hour will go by it's even when you play a video game you know like even when we were addicted to those like you know video games candy our, crush our, or candy crush or whatever like even that like it's fake productivity but like there's something you you're you're like at a higher level after you're done playing you know do you, do you remember that really cruel thing that paul did to us get us hooked on that skiing Oh, that was me. I got. I think I got both of you hooked on it. And in fact, I've been oh. hooked on it again. I got. <laughs> I just. There's a new version of it, uh, that that uh, came out recently, which has yeah. Oh god. <laughs> you know what? I, I I actually I don't know what like I don't know maybe it's the meditating I don't know like I no longer like those things used to destroy me. They used to just take me out. Like I it was like tearing an ACL or something like that where. <laughs> If I if if that happened to me, I would be just out um, for a while. This happened with like I, like a game that I can't even relate to. Like I fucking played like hours and hours of Minion Rush. <laughs> like what the like that's just like a kid's game. What's what, what what is wrong with me? Like I I can't relate to that person right now. If you gave it to me, I might play it for like ten minutes and be like yeah whatever, and then put it like so I don't know. I it feel just, like uh like maybe maybe. The, the positive spin on this is that you would otherwise just be gambling a lot on college football games. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny with those kinds of things, like gambling is a great example. Like I, I, I can be moderate and it's not a problem. But those things I couldn't <laughs> be right moderate here. about. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well. And then all of a sudden I could. or <laughs> And just wasn't attracted to it at all. It's like an alcoholic just suddenly being like, you know what, I don't need to drink. Yeah, you're more eh. clarity. I mean, I'll have a couple of glasses of wine, but I don't need like it's not gonna like send me over the edge. Yeah, yeah. I I um I go I go through phases too where it's something will be the most fun thing in the world, and then just one day it'll stop. It'll happen with like like I'll be super into watching YouTube videos, and then just it'll stop. Or I'll be like you know super get into something, and then it'll just stop. It's, I have, and I feel like I have no control over it, which means I really need to work on my existential freedom. Existential, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I hope this doesn't happen with one of us on the podcast. But like, you know what? <laughs> it's, 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 it's happened. The problem is now that we have sponsors, you know, we can't. Right. <laughs> we have to do it. <laughs> Daddy needs some new shoes. <laughs> All right, and we'll be right back to talk about Sartre. 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 <laughs> This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash VBW. You know, you may not be feeling down and out and depressed or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strain in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. So unload the stress and get it out. Talk to someone who's completely unbiased about your life. Someone who isn't going to judge you or take sides on anything. When there are things you can't tell anyone or feel like you can't unload to family and friends, you need to unload it. And that's what therapy can be. 
BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. Just see if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Very Bad Wizards listeners like you get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Our thanks once again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. The time has come Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we like to thank everybody who gets in touch with us, who interacts with us, and all the different ways that you do. Um, you can always email us. We read all of our emails, uh, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at peas, at Tamler, at Very Bad Wizards. You can follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook for now. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> we'll <That's> see. Right. <laughs> uh, I guess not. Actually, not for now. Like you can't follow us. You can't like have anything to do with Facebook right now. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, given that it's contributing to the downfall of Western civilization. No, but it's also just been down all day. It's been down all day. Did you not know that? No, I knew that they were testifying. The, no, no, they're like, yeah, and Instagram actually. So you can't even follow. Oh, us yeah, on, that's right. Passively on Instagram. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Ah, Instagram's back up. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, this is the quality content our listeners are here for. Yeah. <laughs> Topical too, like, given how um, when this episode comes out. So um, you can join the thriving Reddit community. Um, we've had a lot of action on there with our last two episodes, Marks and um, the Slate Star Codex app. Um, and you can rate us on Apple Podcasts, give us a five star review to you know make up for the like one star reviews for people who think we're like too right. hard on anti woke people. Or <laughs> yeah, bring our average up to two point five, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thank you we really enjoy um, all of our interactions and even if we can't respond to uh, much of a portion of them we uh, we love reading them as we always say it feeds our soul yeah and it makes our day sometimes and if you want to support us in 
more tangible ways, we always appreciate that very, very much. You can go to our support page at verybadwizards.com and just click on the support tab. You'll see all the ways that you can support us there. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. We very much appreciate that. You can become a Patreon supporter. Uh, We love our Patreon supporters. If you do that, there's a few tiers that you can join at. There's a dollar per episode. At that tier, you'll get... Uh, the beats that I've put up over the years and all the episodes will be ad-free. You'll get your own RSS link to have ad-free episodes. At $2 and up, you get our bonus segments, which we have now a hefty back catalog of. Um, and we were just texting that we want to do Pine Barrens and other Sopranos. Yeah, yeah. that's coming soon. Yeah. At $5 and up, you get a couple of things. You get everything that we you get at the lower tiers, but you also get to vote on an episode topic that our Patreon supporters can submit. The $5 and up supporters get to sort of narrow down, bit force us to do one of the however many topics that have been selected by the other listeners and you get access to our five-part series on the brothers karamazov which we're very proud of as we always say and also you get my intro psych video lectures which are being posted once a month i just posted the third this third lecture in the series of what 12 or 13 lectures and finally our ten dollar and up tier our buddies you get to do, you have everything, but also an Ask Us Anything video. We're about to record that second Ask Us Anything video um, where it's exactly what it sounds like. You get to ask us anything <laughs> and we will sit there in an unedited format, talk into our cameras and release it into the wild. There's a reason that we only give it to a few people. We don't want to <laughs> shit out in the world. <laughs> So thank you to everybody for all of your support, tangible and otherwise. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. All right, so let's talk about Sartre and how, like, let's just first talk about how we're going to say it. Some people just just go Sartre and then other people will go Sartre. That's probably what I'll do. Yeah. And then like, like, I should get my ass Sartre. kicked. So, you know. I know. Usually, like, if, if forced to think about it in an English, whatever setting, I think I say Sartre. Mm-hmm. But, like, that doesn't sound that. <laughs> I yeah. I don't I know. That do might, Sartre. Is, that, is Sartre. that good or is that the worst of both worlds? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Crepe. Would you like some crepe? <laughs> you just say crepe. You know what's yeah, an know. interesting <laughs> analogy is. Uh, now I've learned to say I'll have three like croissants, yeah. croissants. Like that's yeah, what croissants. you do, yeah. and, and that's not how they pronounce it. No. But it's like a good. It's like what we've all decided we're doing. Yeah. Like you know, we're honoring right. that it's not an English word, but we're also not going croissant. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a hilarious old SNL skit with a uh, uh, Benjamin. What's his name? Uh, the guy, the guy that was like on L.A. Law, not Benjamin. Uh, Jimmy Smith. He, Jimmy Smith. Yeah. Um, How did where, I know him? Yeah. <laughs> based on Benjamin. I guess it's because the only person I can really name from L.A. Law. So. Yeah. Um, where he he like comes into a meeting. He's like a new guy in a meeting, and everybody around mm. him like pronounces like mm-hmm. burrito. Would you like? yeah, Bob Costas <laughs> is on that one too. Yeah, too. that's right. He comes yeah. In. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, like we're playing the the Denver Broncos. Broncos. 
<laughs> San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> now people just do that like but it's not a joke you know? <laughs> i know <laughs> but that always Terror- sounds terrorists in managua yeah. yeah i was talking to uh, my mother who was a f- french teacher for most of her career and she said well you have to say it Sartre. Sartre. and so i was like okay mom i will but i'm not gonna i'm just gonna say sartre <laughs> Like, but I don't think you sh- you you do the like uh, like r part of that as much. Sartre. Like I don't think the French do. They'll go like Sartre. Sartre. And, and there is a little bit of that. But Sartre. I don't think. Sartre. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have any French listeners? Uh, like, is that... I'm sure that we do. They're Haitian yeah. though. They're Haitian. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> we <laughs> we're big, cool we're big in Haiti. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like they're being deported right now by <laughs> your Democrats. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so what like what's your history with existentialism more broadly? And obviously people want us have wanted us to talk about existentialism like all students want like (laughs) like philosophers to teach classes on existentialism. And we just don't do it out of what? I don't know. Like it's like it's not like that's not interesting stuff. It is. It's just. No, I think you put I think you put your your finger on it a little bit, which is it's so many different things. Like a lot of existentialism comes through books, like novels, and right. and it, it's not as if it's a label. It's not like it, like something that's been clearly defined. The and this is what Sartre says, like throughout the whole thing, like it means a lot to a lot of people. So it's not it's not obvious what we would talk about. And in some cases, we have talked about it through whatever. If you want to say Dostoevsky he, represents uh, it, right, right, right. Even setting that aside, like I think it's as well defined as some philosophical views. I think there's also its association with, like, I don't know, being like a 20-year-old dude that <laughs> it's, is... It's angsty. It was it's angsty. too angsty. <laughs> I think, like, and this is something that Sartre talks about in this, that it has the this association with a certain kind of performative despair um, yeah. at, the, at the void, at the absurd, like a little like the kind of you-can't-handle-the-truth kind of attitude that I think turns... Yeah people off but it also it's just a weird thing that philosophers don't like uh, analytic philosophy in the western tradition that i'm a part of that we don't talk about it because he's talking about all the same stuff that we do talk about this is this is philosophy like this is as philosophy as as anything and i'm just surprised that we don't kind of incorporate it into our you know like into our just general way of introducing philosophy to students Especially given that that's all they want us to do, really, is talk about existential. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, no, it's like it got a bad rap from the analytics, the analytic philosophers, and henceforth never, never to be seen in an Anglo intro philosophy. <laughs> that's the power we have. <laughs> yeah. If you rub us the wrong way, they, like, they, they we cancel them. We cancel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, I'm sure they had their own support group. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know, like, I, I was a huge, like, I've read everything Camus, Camus mm-hmm. has <laughs> written, Camus has written, but I haven't read much Sartre other than, like, the fictional stuff. Like, I read Nausea, and I read No Exit, obviously, because no I yeah. took French in high school. 
in, in terms of his actual work, it's, it's almost like I felt like I had to choose between Sartre and Camus, and right. I liked Camus a lot, and, and, right. and they had a very famous kind of falling out that yeah. played out publicly in the way that French intellectuals fighting <laughs> typically does. Like slapping each other? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With a white glove. <laughs> no, see, but Camus wasn't like that, but I think Sartre was. <laughs> uh, well, it's the French existentialists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. It's very French. Yeah. The the you know, for better and for worse. Yeah. And I love France and I love the French, but you know, they can be annoying and insufferable sometimes. <laughs> and that's kind of what I associated with Sartre right. as like like as a person is you know, like this is really interesting stuff and I wish like uh, my tradition dealt with like interesting questions like he does, but man, like like this guy he needs to get his ass kicked. Yeah, it's a little arrogant, right? Like a little, yeah. like I don't know, I don't know what it is that's coming across as arrogant, but, but uh, yeah. All right, let's let's talk about it. I think like just a couple things to say about the the essay in general. He he published it. It is a, like one of the most common pieces that people turn to as a, an introduction to ent- existentialism that kind of lays it out a lot more explicitly than you would get from Nietzsche or Kierkegaard, you know, never mind like a novel like The Stranger or right. Nausea. Like this is actually a piece of philosophy and it, and it's a piece of, like I was saying, an essentially analytic philosophy to some extent, you know? It doesn't seem like it's coming from this completely new tradition that's just indecipherable like i you can totally understand what he's saying yeah, and right. i'm a little surprised that he's not engaged with more actually yeah. on that note i i just realized that i i'm now i'm almost certain i did read it because i see in in my little version of it it was taken from this book called existentialism from dostoevsky to sartre and yeah. by walter kaufman and i definitely read that book like i think that was yeah. like one of my first forays into it all right, so I, I'm not going to summarize. He sets this up as it's, you know, responding to people's criticisms of existentialism. And some of that stuff is, is fun. Some of it, it just seems like people wouldn't criticize you for that these days, that they're too gloomy, too pessimistic. But I think it's a useful frame for him just defining what he thinks are the central tenets of existentialism. Speaking very broadly, the first just takes as a starting point that we that, that experience is subjective. So he, I think he starts from this kind of Descartes place where he says, all we know is we're, we're presented in this world, we find ourselves in an environment, and we find that we can think, and that's all we know for sure. We have no discernible like essence, uh, essence or any kind of guide to tell us what to do or who to be or what to value, and we have to choose for for our, for ourselves. That's what it means to be human. That's the one thing that we all share, and that's just the situation. If you look and you examine it clearly, you'll find that you're in that situation just like he is. Yeah, it's uh, it's the one of my favorite terms of the existentialist is thrownness, like the being thrown into the world. It's what Heidegger, how Heidegger described it. Right. Like That's just, exactly right. Like, yeah. yeah. You're just kind of dropped in here yeah. and now you have to figure out what to do. Um, and, 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 and with that comes with this kind of 
the, the second big thing is this, uh, as he describes it, we're condemned to be free. Yeah. So we have like we can't get out of this situation that that we find ourselves in this where we are dropped into the to, to the world and, and and now we have to decide what to do and and what to create and there's no pre-existing as far as we're concerned there's no pre-existing values that we can turn to because how are we supposed to know whether which values are good and which out like we have to decide that for ourselves and we have to choose at, at least many points during our day we face this inexorable situation of choice that we can't run away from we can't get out of uh, we can try to delude ourselves that we don't face that, but we actually do, and that's our that's our predicament. It's an you know he calls it a kind of anguish because there's no escape. Yeah, right. The the it's it's interesting how much of this essay rides on this fundamental freedom. Like, because I would think you could be an existentialist and argue look, we're, we're sort of condemned to, to, to like live in a world that we didn't ask to, be, you know, we didn't ask to be created. There's no guidebook. There's nothing to do. But you could also just be like a determinist. Like, I don't, I, it's. Well, he doesn't think you can be. Though. No, I know. That's like, what's interesting about it. Like how central, like ultimate, ultimate choices to him. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like you, he says you can say that people are determined and you can look back at your actions and say that they're oh yeah like now i get why i did that because like i'm a drunk right i'm a hothead or whatever yeah but you know in the moment you can't deny that you have a choice like to do one thing or another and given that you know that like it's bad faith to say oh no that was determined or oh no everything i do is determined because your experience isn't like that right and that's, it, it seems as if it, it's like a different conversation than like you might have about libertarian free will versus determinism. Like I always took his point to be like what, just the way that you said it. Like it's bad faith to say, to like fall on the excuse that, well, this is just my genes or whatever. Cause our experience, our subjective experience fundamentally is one of like actually making choices. And he's, He's saying, like, if you don't embrace that, then you're essentially not acting in good faith. Um, or, yeah, you don't, yeah, you're just not, you're being dishonest. Yeah, you're right? being dishonest. You're not, you're not accurately reporting the experience that you have. Yeah, right. So, so that's the second big tenet here is, and, and, and he also defends a version of atheistic existentialism, although he doesn't think you have to do that, but... If you combine atheism, the kind of subjectivism that he says we all experience, and the kind of freedom that he says we undeniably have based on our experience, you know, then the essay is just, well, what follows from those three cent central tenets? Right. Um, and is it something to be upset about? Is it something to be to despair over? Or is it is it optimistic? Is it pessimistic? Is it moral? Is it immoral? Like... Those are the things, but the, you know, as the central starting core tenet, those you know, that's what it is. Right, and the 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 phrase existence comes before essence. I think captures a lot of what he's trying to say. And I get, you know, I think what attracted me, I don't know, like what attracted me initially to existentialism was this realization that like there are a lot of crutches like that we have that say, oh, 
humans are this and they're supposed to be that. And you're just like, this is the guide to the right life. And when you start realizing that like those, they can't all be right. You know, at least this was my journey, <laughs> like raised being raised in religion gives you such comfort that you know exactly what you're supposed to do and how things are going to turn out. And once that gets pulled out from under you, you realize that like, Oh, there, there is no universal guidebook for what it means to be human. This, this free, the, the fact that freedom is so daunting was something that I, I think I really related to. Like this was like a, 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 really terrifying thought like what if humans don't have some deep purpose that was created for them right which i think he thinks you know he says we don't have it but he recognizes that some people say we do have you know there is some god that is but i think his sort of meta point is but you have no way of knowing even if you have that that you're right right about that Right. So you're still in that position of free choice. And now just one of the choices you're making is, do I believe this thing for which I certainly don't have conclusive evidence that there is some God and that this God is good and this God has handed down like true values. Right. Like, you know, so you're really just still in that situation, even if you're a religious person. And that's why, the, you know, this is where he appeals to Kierkegaard's discussion of Abraham which I think right. encapsulates that so well, which is, see, like, of course, religion as presented to me was always just like, no, you have a certainty that God exists and what he tells you to do is right. And the story of Abraham, as Kierkegaard describes it, is this, because the choice that he is told to make by God is so daunting, Abraham must realize that ultimately the choice as to whether or not to kill his son is, is his. It falls on him. Whether, you know, whatever you believe about God, like he could reject it or he could accept it. Like the choice was going to be his fundamentally. And that, that the notion of God doesn't protect you from the fact that humans have the ultimate freedom over all of their decisions. Because as as he says, which is kind of an interesting thing that I don't usually think of when I think of this case is like, he has to think, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm just hearing voices like, like my, like uncle Harry hears voices in his head. (laughs) You know, I think Abraham had an Uncle Harry. But he can't get out of that just general uncertainty of how the fuck do we know, like, that, that, that I'm not crazy or that I'm, you know, that, that I'm on the right track in how I'm thinking about anything yeah. right now. And, and so you have to commit yourself. It's this, like, just inevitable, inexorable, you're forced to commit. And in doing so, that's how you create your essence but but there's the the essence doesn't come before by virtue of you being human or by virtue of you being like one of god's children it's only once you start making choices and you start deciding between values that you that that you become like a a a being you become some some you become something yeah she says thus the first effect of existentialism is that it puts every man in possession of himself as he is and places the entire responsibility for his existence squarely upon his own shoulders. Right. He actually goes one step further to, than that, which I want to talk yes, about. Yes, exactly. Me that's too. where I, I completely jump ship. But like, let's just, just talk about what he's saying right there. I mean, on the one hand, it does seem like he is 
embracing this kind of radical and possibly incoherent notion of free will. And yet something about it seems okay to me. I guess just that he's capturing something that that, that resonates with my phenomenology. That's what my I think. Subjective experience. Yeah, and that's all what he's trying. To, that's what he's trying to do. That's what it. I was trying to say when I like when I was saying that it's at least the way I read it. What he's it's like a different level of analysis. Like I think you could be a metaphysical determinist, but still find that there is something in what Sartre is saying here that is that is deeply true, which is whether whether or not we're completely determined like we we make choices and there's something about the attitude toward those choices that matters and um because even if you're a complete determinist you're still a like copping out wuss if you just say that like well it doesn't matter what i did i didn't have any control over it like yeah so i like i i'm not sure that i agree with that that you can be a metaphysical determinist and still agree with Sark on this maybe not maybe not we, i i think he would think that i you know i but i don't know i don't know if he had a metaphysical stance about free freedom in like the way that we talk about it in the debate but so, but between, i mean like yeah. i think it just because i think he, he he wouldn't just accept that you can have some sort of objective view about the world that doesn't cohere with your fundamental experience I'm not sure about this, but like he would say, what does it mean to be a metaphysical determinist, but still believe with every ounce of your being that you have a choice that that you that that you're making, and that's kind of fundamental to who you are as a person. Right. And maybe what he you would value. Be a, maybe he would just be a compatibilist. Maybe he would just say, no, doesn't. not even a compatibilist. Well. No, I I don't know. Like I think he thinks that, that it's so fundamental this this experience that you can't be a compatibilist because that means that determinism would be true and that's just not what you experience fundamentally. Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is I buy determinism as the truth and I still find deep value in the way that Sartre's talking. And I don't know if that's means that I am comfortable with a with an incoherence. <laughs> um right. But right. Yeah. so which I very well might be, but I, I, I for some reason I think he's not talking you know, I feel like he's talking about some other thing. I agree. Yeah. I, I it's like he's not participating in the debate and yeah. we participated. Uh, right, right. Yeah, you know the one uh, Galen Strawson I think is somebody who really goes out of his way to you know, accept that this is our subjective experience. Um, and op I think he he refers to Sartre often when he's talking about it. He's like, the way Sartre describes it is the way we feel. Like, there, right. that's an experience, and that creates this, like, radical duality within, like, a kind of inconsistency that you alluded to, which is your experience doesn't match some objective. I guess Nagel is kind of like this, too. So your objective understanding of how the world works. Like those two things are um, in fundamental tension with each right. other. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored by chess.com. Dave, this is like having them as a sponsor is, is very exciting for me because I have been a chess.com member since like a, pretty much as long as I can remember since like 2002 or 2003. I remember like, like uh, taking a shit 
at the University of Minnesota Morris, my first job. So maybe like 2007 or something like that, definitely before 2008. And I would do their puzzles on, uh, you know, when I when I took a shit. Like yeah. I've been doing this forever, and I love Chess.com. So I am. Uh, this is a like I'm not. Even, this isn't on the bullet point. Like say if you've been taking a shit with Chess.com <laughs> for the last like 15 years, but I just feel the need to share that information. I know. When they approached us, like your excitement was palpable. I didn't even <laughs> know you were into chess that much. Uh, but like, damn, 2002, that's back when I was calling, I was still calling the Knights horsies. <laughs> <laughs> right. Do you play chess? I I know how to play and I, I played here and there when I was growing up, but I, it's too intimidating for me. Like, I don't want to lose. It's the one thing that I'm competitive at. And, and if I lose, I feel like that person was smarter than me and I don't want, ever want to feel that way. Yeah, no, it is like that. It's like your ego is at mm-hmm. stake. And chess.com is free, you know, at a, at a certain level. It's easy to play and um, and it's simple to learn, they say. I'm not sure about that. And it's not distracting. Well, it is a great form of... It's like the one thing you can procrastinate with and feel good about yourself from doing it. Not like it. Candy Crush. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. Uh, improving your chess game is easy. They have, a, I use this all the time. Like, this is so exciting. I have this computer analyze my mistakes and recommend uh, lessons to strengthen my skills. And I now have a Diamond membership, which gives me unlimited access to all the chess.com features, unlimited puzzles, unlimited lessons, unlimited game analysis, like the best kind of game analysis where they just go through every move and tell you like what the move was and what the better uh, you know, like what would have been a better move, why that was a blunder or a mistake or just an inaccuracy. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's I very had, cool. I had like, no I'm, idea. I'm, I'm that, yeah. so on board with this. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell. Yeah, you're, like your gesticulations, if only our viewers could see. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody can be on it because it's free. And if you if you just do that the, the the certain membership, and so you can just play your friends, you can play play my brother all the time, and I, I beat him like probably seventy percent of the time. And then the puzzles, I love these puzzles. I'm very good at them. I've done, I like I'm embarrassed to say that I've done like fifty thousand puzzles or something <laughs> like that. Like just an insane amount of puzzles. But and I'm embarrassed, but I actually don't mind. Like because. It's it's amazing. Um, you can play it on your phone um, and already find out which one of your friends are on it. So yes, I, I like I love it. Uh, ready to improve your chess game? Head over to chess.com/slash/very-bad. So no wizards, just chess.com/slash/very-bad today to start playing. That's chess.com/slash/very-bad to start playing your friends and learning chess today. Thank you to chess.com for giving me like unlimited entertainment and, and fulfillment over these past 15 years and for supporting Very Bad Wizards. There is a conflict to me when I read Robert Solomon's take on emotions where, where he really sort of embraced this view that everything is a, is a fundamental choice and therefore all of your emotional responses like right. and not even in some sort of Aristotelian, Aristotelian like um, you know, virtue ethics kind of way, but like every emotion is literally 
a judgment that you're making of your own free will, like of your right. own free choice. Um, and that always struck me as like, well, that doesn't seem quite right. Like, okay, well, that doesn't capture the experience. Like, yeah, like exactly. what Sartre is talking about captures exactly. the experience. Yeah, so I think the fact that he is capturing something real, at least some of the time, like a lot of the time we do stuff and, you know, we're on autopilot. Right. But there are times when we're making a, a, we're faced with like a present decision that it really does feel um, like it is entirely up to you um, what to do. Okay. The next thing he says is something that just seems like I, I so implausible to me that I, I kind of can't believe that it's in this it, it's in the same article as all these other things <laughs> where I might agree with, I might disagree with, but I still see there's some force to it. So I'll, I'll read you the passage. I think you already know what I'm going to say. Yeah. When we say that man chooses himself, we do mean that every one of us must choose himself. But by that, we also mean that in choosing for himself, he chooses for all men. Yeah. For in effect, of all the, that the actions a man may take in order to create himself as he wills to be, there is not one which is not creative at the same time of the image of man such as he believes he ought to be. To choose between this and that is to, at the same time, affirm the value of which that which is chosen, for we are unable to ever choose the worst. What we choose is always the better, and, and nothing can be better for us unless it is better for all. If, moreover, existence precedes essence and we will to, and we will to exist and at the same time fashion our image, that image is valid for all and for the entire epoch in which we find ourselves. Our responsibility is thus much greater than we had supposed for it concerns mankind as a whole. Like, what? What? It's like he tripped and, and fell ass first <laughs> into the categorical imperative. Right. <laughs> I know. I was completely thrown off by this as well. And I, and I was like, well, you know, part of the the radicalness of what he's been saying of like having ultimate freedom and like not values not existing, you know, before you make choices. Then all of a sudden he gets into this weird like like act act as if that will become law. Right. Like, which he rejects. Like he doesn't. Re he doesn't accept the Kantian imperative as for the reason that Kant. Right. Uh, yeah. In fact, he, he takes digs at that here. But yeah. like, but he. So is what he's saying that merely like what it means to choose a, an action means that it is expressing a value that, and, and by expressing a value, it just must mean that you think this value is one that we all ought to have. Like. Yeah. I mean, the best spin on it that I can imagine, although he doesn't make distinctions between like moral choices and personal choices, right. but there's no way that he thinks that if I have Baskin Robbins chocolate chip <laughs> sure. ice cream, that means I'm saying everybody should have chocolate chip ice cream. I think he thinks what distinguishes these kinds of choices that are personal taste from a kind of moral value as opposed to some idiosyncratic value yeah. is that you think that everybody in your situation should do that thing if you do it. And I just don't see, like, even the example that he uses, right? So he says, if I desired to marry and to have children, even though this decision proceeds simply from my situation, from my passion or my desire, I am thereby committing not only myself, but humanity as a whole to the practice of monogamy. 
I am thus responsible for myself and for all men, and I am creating a certain image of man as I would have him to be. In fashioning myself, I fashion man. Yeah. Like, it's bizarre because the stuff about creating yourself just seems to follow from the premises that he is laying out. Yeah. You know, you have to create yourself through your choices and through your values. But what does that have to do with mankind? And why would you have to commit yourself to that? <laughs> it, I don't, I, I don't it, understand it. it. It read to me like a, a sort of PR for existentialism where he, like he, he didn't want people to think that they were amoral. You know, he talks about, he's like, oh, and when we speak of anguish, we mean that. Like what, what an existentialist means by anguish is that we have the anguish of choosing for all of humankind. And it's like you said, it, it doesn't follow at all. And he doesn't do the work to make it follow. He just sort of says it and, and then knocks people who, who, right. who don't think this. So, he's, you know, he says, right. the existentialist frankly states that man is in anguish. His meaning is as follows. When a man commits himself to anything, fully realizing that he's not only choosing what he will be, but is thereby at the same time a legislator deciding for the whole of mankind, humankind, Sartre. In such a moment, a man cannot escape from the sense of complete and profound responsibility. There are many, indeed, who show no such anxiety, but we affirm that they are merely disguising their anguish or are in flight from it. Certainly, many people think that in what they are doing, they commit no one but themselves to anything. And if you ask them, what would happen if everyone did so? They shrug their shoulders and reply, everyone does not do so. But in truth, one ought always ask oneself what would happen if everyone did as one is doing. Nor can one escape from that disturbing thought except by a kind of self-deception. The man who lies in self-excuse by saying everyone will not do it must be ill at ease in his conscience. For the act of lying implies the universal value which it denies. But I just don't get it. I don't. I don't get it either. Why? Like, (laughs) why are they lying? It's true (laughs) that uh, not everybody will do it. Like, how is it? Like, where's the lie there? That's like, like, I get that you might be lying to yourself if you think, no, I... You know, like I was determined to have that choice when you experienced uh, that you had, you know, multiple possibilities and you could choose one of them. I get why he might say that's a lie. But why? But why is it a lie to say something that is true and that like, yeah. he, the person clearly believes? This is why I actually like analytic philosophy, because they would be pushed to actually <laughs> to defend <laughs> a claim like this, <laughs> like be forced to explain why this follows at all. It feels like he's hand-waving here. And, and the hand-waving that I feel that he's doing is, again, one that seems like PR-friendly for existentialism, which is, no, we're not. Like, we also firmly believe that 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 um, one ought act as if, you know, the world's values depends on what you yourself do. Um, yeah. I think you're right. Like, he's worried about people dismissing it or criticizing it for being just too, like, anything goes subjectivist. Yeah. But it's such a violent, like, extreme response (laughs) to that worry. So even take his very famous case, which we should talk about, which is the student who comes to start and has to make this big decision, this life-defining like or I guess life creating right uh, decision. I love this section, by the way. Like, yeah, it, yeah, I do too. Yeah. Um, so here is the, here uh, the setup is this. Uh, it, it's a student comes to Sark says I don't know what to do. Uh, his elder brother has been killed in uh, the German offensive of 1940. Uh, this young man who has a 
primitive but generous sentiment burned to avenge. <laughs> I like the way sorry, this is why people don't like him. A sentiment somewhat primitive and, and but generous. But generous. Like, <laughs> fuck off if you're a student. Uh, burned to avenge him. His mother was living alone with him, deeply afflicted by the semi-treason of his father and by the death of her eldest son, and her one consolation was this young man. But he, at this moment, had the choice between going to England to join the free French forces or of staying near his mother and helping her to live. He fully realized that this woman lived only for him and his disappearance or perhaps death would plunge her into despair. He also realized that concretely and in fact, every action he performed on his mother's behalf would be sure to affect in the sense of aiding her to live, whereas anything he did to go to fight would be an ambiguous ac action which might vanish like water into sand and, so, ser and serve no purpose. What could help him to choose? So then he goes through these different things like Christian doctrine. Well, no, the Christian doctrine, like, you could uh, interpret it either way for this, right. right? Brotherly love, like, honor your mother, um, you Den know. Deny yourself uh, for others. Yeah, so, like, religious doctrines, also the universalizability principle. He says here explicitly that doesn't yeah. help. He doesn't say utilitarianism doesn't help, but in some ways, maybe it doesn't. It, it, number one, just that that's what you're deciding to observe as a fundamental moral principle, like right. you're committing yourself to that. And number two, of course, you have no idea like which one would get would end up bringing more net happiness. Right. Are you going to fight? Are you bringing your mother? So there's a practical thing, too. And, and then the last thing he says, which is kind of interesting, is that he thinks like your sentiments aren't helpful here either. Yeah. It's not like you can just trust your feelings. And one of the reasons he says that you can't is that a sentiment which is play-acting and one which is vital are two things that are hardly distinguishable from one, one from another. To decide that I love my mother by staying beside her and to play a comedy, the upshot of which is that I do so, these are nearly the same thing. Right, because he thinks that, and this is a theme that he has uh, throughout this article, that he says action really is the only thing that matters. And so... He's, you know, almost like a like a behaviorist in this way. He says the only sense in which the word, say, love means anything is if you act in a way that indicates that you love somebody. So your saying is the love. Right. Like, so you can't use love as justifying staying. Yeah, no, so that's, he's definitely saying that. I think here he's also saying that, like, pretend feelings and real feelings are the same not in the sense that they're like definitionally the same because you know it's only the action that matters but i think also because like we can't often ourselves just distinguish between feelings that we kind of are trying to put on for some reason and right. and genuine feelings right yeah like you know like oh i'm supposed to be sad because my 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 father is really ill versus I really am sad that my father is really right Ill. right like but both of them are feelings it's hard yeah yeah the part about the the the, the action is like in the paragraph right before um, yeah but yeah which he also definitely believes is that your action just defines yeah your... yeah in other words feeling is formed by the deeds that one does therefore I cannot consult it as a guide to action. There's a kind of fetishism of action right. in this because it is tied to choice, which is that fundamental mm -hmm. thing in the way that feelings aren't tied to choice. Um, but I do. So I do love this point that that, you know, systems of ethics can't tell this man what to do. 
like this. Yeah, young that's man. absolutely right. Right. Like, yeah. It's, it's a that's... it's a great point, and it's we've talked a little bit about this before, sort of joking that business ethics can't teaching Kant to like people who are in business school is not yeah. it's not going to get them, or like teaching utilitarianism is not going to get them to like make the right decision. It's just going to give them some way to justify whatever decision they want to make because like these big systems of ethics don't they're not good at guiding guiding choice they're un, they underspecify like if that's their goal at all like i mean some you know you might say that is their goal and they fail but you might also say no like kant's you know kant wanted to ground morality in general not tell you what to do but either way it's not going to help you yeah that, that that young man has to make the choice based on all of the specific features of his life and his values and nobody can do it for him like there's no book that will give him the answer right there's two there's two different issues i think there's one that any moral system will probably underspecify and won't be able to tell you what to do in this case unless it's like rule number one like right. never leave your mother <laughs> or something like yeah. that you know rule number but, two always go to fight for your country <laughs> <laughs> and that's one problem but then the other problem is even if you know your moral theory could give you a really good sense of what to do. There's still all these competing moral theories. Yeah. And you would have to decide which one of them to consult. And even when you ask advice from people, it's like you know what you're gonna you know what you're gonna get. Like if <laughs> yeah. if, if you go to your priest and you know the priest is gonna tell you to stay with your mother, then you've made that choice. Yeah. And he says similarly in coming to me he knew what advice I should give him, and I had but one reply to make. You are free, therefore <laughs> choose. That is to say, invent. No rule of general morality can show you what you ought to do. <laughs> no signs are vouchsafed in this world. Like, oh, thanks. Thanks, Jean-Paul. I appreciate yeah. that. I was... JP, you, you did me a solid. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Just give me an answer. <laughs> like, how oh, did, like, you are free. Oh. <laughs> Imagine being a student that really like came to him for this, and this is what, <laughs> and this is what he said. You know, like the student then like just broke a chair over his head. <laughs> you, you really My first play. act of freedom will be to break a chair over Sartre's head. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let so I think we both agree this is a great example in it to kind of highlight these uh, these choices that we have, where it really does feel like we're responsible because. We're committing ourselves to one thing or another that in, in that's kind of define that's going to define ourselves in some way. Yeah. Do you abandon your mother to go fight for your country, or do you uh, stay with your mother while other people are dying to try to fight the Nazis, and you're not? Like th that will define you, and you, there's no way out of you having to make that choice. Th I, I think that's right. That's that's, re that's really an interesting. That's really interesting. What it doesn't do, though, is show me that that young man, when he decides for himself, is deciding for all humanity. It just <laughs> right. seems like precisely the kind of case where that's not true. No, and it's so weird to read this example in, it, it, like, in the paragraph immediately following that other thing, mm -hmm. where you're just like, wait, can you just undermined your, like, or are you trying to like say, no, no, I meant. I meant that the universal value here is to like to be free, and that's what I mean by decide. Because there's no way out of it without weaseling a little bit. 
I mean, I think you could say that when, like, there's a way to make it kind of trivial, which is to say that all I mean by universalizable is if you are this exact person at this <laughs> yeah. exact time, like, that's what you think. I, uh, but then you're not really choosing for all of humanity no. in any real sense. No, like, no. I, that's, well, the, that, that's the only thing that makes even remote sense. Or even, like, you are this kind of person, you know, like a French person of this... Particular Although, temperament with this, with a mother this dependent on you, and you know, every and, every version of you in a nearby universe, right, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I I'm I choose to to ignore his his universalizability point in this right. because I, I think that he doesn't need it. He didn't need to say it. Like if if what he wants to do is somehow ground decision making in a way that's not utterly selfish. You know, I think the, the attack on existentialism that it's super self-indulgent and valueless is, again, I'm repeating myself, but what probably made him try to say, like, no, 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 like that, that that's not what it is. And I believe him that it's not what it is. I just don't think he found the right way to define the values. It seems like the exact right place to defend some sort of particularism or, you know, pluralism without yeah. negating values like it, it's like there was the ch he had the chance right there to make like if he had just even written an article starting starting with this point about this young man and then right. gone on to say how existentialism uh you know shows you that there can't be a, there's no universal answer to this problem and right. and i really you know i like his point about it that that the cowardice would be in somehow copping out of a decision or thinking that you you're yeah. not making the decision he that you have to embrace the fact that you're free to make these decisions yeah right he says uh there are some people who ha uh, use this resource to sustain them in their misery that is to think circumstances have been against me i was worthy to be something much better than i have been i admit i've never had a great love or a great friendship but that is because i've never met a man or yeah. a woman who are worthy of it i have if i have not written any good books it's because I had not the leisure to do so, and blah blah blah, and he's like, no, like you either do it or you don't. Yeah. Like the there's a, that that potential that you're talking about is just your. It's it's another kind of reflection of bad faith on your part. Exactly. Uh, he's he's like, don't. I think this is something he pulled back a little bit on in the later years, and hmm. I know Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah, who I almost you know I wanted to suggest one of her uh writings but like i was about to suggest uh the first chapter of her book or the second sex i don't remember now but it was a bit about existential. it was an existential maybe we'll read we'll save it for the future you know the, the way he describes it makes it sound like you're the choices are boundless within like you know natural right like physical uh law you know right. obviously you can't decide to fly but um, and I think one influence she had on him was making that there, there, there are these constraints that are narrower than he is, you know, making it out to be here. And that there might be something true to the fact that somebody might have been a great writer, but just never had the time <laughs> to really write except for. But whenever he did, it was like it was it showed this like a lot of talent. But unfortunately, the person had to work two jobs and never really got a chance to see that come to fruition. That makes right. sense. Yeah, you know? I think it's like when he says it the way that he says it, I know the kind of person he's talking about, yeah. but but it seems like it is too strong a claim. 
Um, yeah. The, the, to say yeah. that that's like he's kind of saying it's it's incoherent almost. Yeah. It's like to to say that your potentiality is just the sum of what you've done. It's like just that's do what it. he said. Just do yeah. it. Just come on. Just do it. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> Pull yourself up. <laughs> Like my, my my ancestors did. You know? <laughs> Nobody ever hand <laughs> no handouts. Do you think this black turtleneck and cigarette in my hand got there on their own? <laughs> 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 Maybe as a way of closing, there's another kind of interesting analogy that he makes that is again in the complete opposition to this idea of universalizability. But if you just take that out, it seems um, <laughs> resonant with the other stuff. Um, which is like aesthetic value versus moral value analogy that he gives. Yeah. And he says, like, okay, first of all, we're not propounding an aesthetic morality, right? Like, we're not, we're not, we don't think of ourselves like maybe Nietzsche sometimes did as like these great statues to build, <laughs> yeah. you know, like with our choices. And, and he says, so I'm not saying that. Although it's it's a little unclear, I think, what exactly the difference is. But he says, that being understood, does anyone reproach an artist when he paints a picture for not following rules established a priori? Does, that, does, does one ever ask what, a, what is the picture that he ought to paint? As everyone knows, there's no predefined picture for him to make. The artist applies himself to the composition of a picture, and the picture that ought to be made is precisely that which he will have made. As everyone knows, there are no aesthetic values a priori, but there are values which will appear in due course in the coherence of the picture, in the relation between the will to create and the finished work. What has this to do with morality? We are in, all in the same creative situation. We never speak of a work of art as irresponsible. When we are discussing a canvas by Picasso, we understand very well that the composition became what it is at the time when he was painting it and that his works of art are part and parcel of his entire life. I, and nobody says, oh, well, that that means the paintings don't really have value because there was no a priori rules that say, that that, that uh, determine it has value. It has whatever value it is that you put into it and that people recognize. Yeah, I was I was struggling to understand what like how this analogy was supposed to work, because he's clearly made a strong statement, you know, about universalizability and here with his aesthetic analogy like it seems it sounds like what he's saying is well look no one just like no one can tell you what you ought to paint um but once you've painted it he doesn't say this explicitly but he talks about the the there are values which will appear in due course in the coherence of the picture in the relationship between the will to create and the finished work like, is he saying that a work of art once produced can be evaluated in like contextually? We can say this Picasso, this was good or this was bad without having to say a priori what Picasso should have painted. Yeah. And that, that real values can be identified. Like, I think like the in idea context is there, like, I guess, like in. Yes. Yeah. In the context, oh, this is Picasso. And then, you know, also, you know, you're going to uh, imagine not just that you find it like on a beach and you know nothing about Picasso, but you're going to actually, you know, relate it to other works of his that he has. And 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 more the more you know about just the arc maybe of his career, the more values that you'll pick up on. Yeah. But all these things came through his spontaneous 
creative act of will and would not have, you know, nobody could have said, all right, I think this is the, this is what will make for a value, valuable Picasso work that had to just emerge as he did it. Right. And so he wants to say, you know, he's in part addressing this criticism that, well, then you can't, as an existentialist, you can't judge, like you are unable to judge others. And he says, this is true in one sense and false in another. It is true in this sense that whenever a man chooses his purpose and his commitment in all clearness and in all sincerity, whatever that purpose may be, it, it is impossible for him to prefer another. It is true in the sense that we do not believe in progress. <laughs> I don't know. He kind of loses me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, progress implies amelioration, but man is always the same facing a situation which is always changing, and choice remains always a choice in the situation. The moral problem has not changed since the time when it was a choice between slavery and anti-slavery. From the time of the War of Secession until the present moment when one chooses between whatever the movement, Republican, Populaire, and the Communists. We can judge nevertheless for, as I have said, one chooses in view of others, and in view of others, one chooses himself. So, like, I... I right, is that gibberish? I, I, that's what I was trying to... <laughs> that's what I was trying to suss out. And, like, I, I think that what he's trying to say, like, I'm being charitable, is that he is trying to say that uh, abandoning, like our abandonment of a priori uh, rule books does not mean that we're unable to say that something is good and something is bad. It's just that you can't say that something is good or bad without taking into account like whatever, both the ultimate freedom of the person and their journey so far and all the choices they've made, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's saying that in like, ice skating there's just things that they're judged on or like in a sport like right. you know there's uh ways to win points and lose points and we have that all established and chess there are rules and so we can uh we can assess how well the person plays um based on how well they play according to those rules but with morality it's not like that that doesn't mean we can't judge the people just like we can and this is where i think the aesthetic analogy is helpful like there are no rules, like ironclad rules when it comes to art, but we are able to s distinguish between better and worse artists. Yeah. And without this kind of false presumption that there is some standard by which to judge them, like some just uh, universally true standard. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I like the analogy. I don't think he's saying it very well. But um, the analogy, I think, is a powerful one in that, like, with aesthetic choices and aesthetic actions, like music or whatever, um, the more I learn about music, the more comfortable I am in deciding that something is better than something else or worse than something else right. without ever feeling like I'm an absolutist. Moral choices, I think, often are framed or communicated as rules that are unbending and I, you know, I get why, but with aesthetic judgments, I trust like the person who knows a lot about music, who tells me that this is a better work than this other one. I trust that they just have a better understanding of all of the things that go into making good art. And that at some point, like I would be able to realize that. Uh, without really feeling like they're being disingenuous in their judgment or that they're being uh, capricious right. 
and that it's not or latest. that they've tapped into some like right. universal rule book. That's right. Of they're neither, standards they're neither entire, Yeah, they're neither yeah. entirely capricious nor are they uh, like have they discovered the secret commandments. Right. Yeah. And and but but we can still feel very comfortable saying we can judge these things. Yeah. You yeah. know, we're not saying we're definitely right, right, but we're making judgments. We're making evaluative judgments there. Yeah, so I think you give me this 15 years ago or 20 years ago when I'm still in grad school or just, you know, like an early grad school and I am making fun of it, even though, like, my interest in existentialism is almost certainly what led me, <laughs> right. in, in, in large part, <laughs> right. to philosophy. But, like, I, I would have thought this is, you know, especially with regards to its treatment of free will, you know, like, it's, like, it might as well be Roderick Chisholm or something. It's just this libertarian bl blabber. But <laughs> now, I, but I don't think it's that. Like, I think it is, it, you know, it, it has metaphilosophical... Kind of it, it it works from different metaphilosophical assumptions in how it's approaching um, philosophy or how it's approaching just talking about freedom. And once you understand that, that's a really valuable that's a valuable thing. I mean, I wonder if it's true of Roderick Chisholm. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it, it is. You know what? What you just made me think of is that there is so one. I I, I think I'm the same. Like there's this sort of U-shaped curve where. I, like I ate this stuff up in, in college, then thought it was soft and European. And now, now like I'm <laughs> coming to see the value in it. Um, but with existentialism in particular, it's almost, it's the way that, that Sartre is laying this out. This very essay demonstrates that, Spe speaking of this plainly in a philosophical treatise is not the best way to do it. And I think that there's a reason that so much of what we call existentialist work is art. Yeah. Because like that seems like a good medium to convey the, the ideas of existentialism. The minute you try to lay it out in this, in this, right. you know, quasi analytical philosophy sort of way, it seems to yeah. lose something. Like, yeah. And right. It becomes too schematic. Yeah. I mean, it becomes theorized in a way that I mean, of course, we're coming at this from our own traditions, yeah. but maybe not the best way to try to portray something which is so fundamentally tied to the subjective. Yeah. You know, like given that it's so fundamentally tied to the subjective, trying to talk about it in a in this kind of theoretical way just betrays that at some level. And that's when you start going, you know, just throwing in universalizability. Yeah. It, like just for like just like like I just stumbled into the paper like and it, when it was supposed <laughs> right. to be in a different paper or something <laughs> like that. It's, it's like it, it's, it's like just go walking into the wrong room or something. Yeah. The the form, the the medium, the form that he's using to convey these ideas. And as you say, maybe it's our our experience and our perspective, but like if you lay it out as if it's a, a carefully structured argument, then w like I will respond to it by finding the flaws in the argument. And right. that's, and I don't think that's like the points that I take existentialism to be making are, you know, and maybe this is even why I have like a higher tolerance for someone like Kierkegaard who was writing n nonfiction, but, was still writing it in this sort of more poetic, yeah. loose kind of poem. way. Yeah. yeah. 
not not in this sort of like and right. b- number two we mean just dis- by despair we mean this and three by anguish we mean this like he was just speaking of anguish and despair <laughs> yeah. like yeah i mean all that said though if it hadn't been for the universalizability part yeah. of this so you just remove that then i would say there's about an average number like it, it's average for an analytic philosophy paper especially one of these kind of classic papers where you know clearly it it yeah. clicked you know it just inspired a lot of interest but then there are these big blind spots that you're like how did how did somebody this smart not see them yeah it's just the you know, like, and, and so, like, I appreciated it for that compared to a lot of other exist, like, primary existentialist sources that can be just like either indecipherable or just very tedious. Right. And I and I I think what I looked at in of being a nothingness, the big <laughs> Sartre book, yeah. like, like I just couldn't, like, I I because I did I was interested in that stuff, but I don't think I could get through it. Yeah. Like even close. No. Yeah. No. No. And like and. One of the reasons we even chose this was because when we were deciding to talk about existentialism, like it, it didn't seem like we should start with one of those like short stories or plays or, or like it helps. Yeah. It actually helps to have an explicit, yeah, treating of the subject that that then we can use as like a starting point to agree or disagree with whatever but you know like rather than have us rather than have it rely so much on our interpretation as we would in a short story or something like that yeah Um, yeah i i think it is worth reading it even though it's true that i think there it it betrays something to even try to get this theoretical or it also is helpful yeah and will help us as i'm sure we you know we're getting we're getting old people. We're gonna be we're gonna be concerned with these existentialists. With these existentialists. Well, really, the U shape curve. I think is right. Like yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> I really mainly just want to know what this guy did. Did he stay with his mom? Did he go to war? <laughs> really, that's the big was, question. <laughs> he spent like the next fifteen years in prison for like a, an assault on Jean Paul Sartre. <laughs> It was like a brutal assault. Like it's just <laughs> scrawled all over his cell wall. It's like Star Trek, like little new, newspaper clippings of him. <laughs> Choose this, you motherfucker. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> all right. All right. Join us next time of your own free choice. <laughs> Create yourself next time by listening to Very Bad With